Could you declare that to be true in your life this morning? That God is great? Reality is that not everybody can declare that. Some can. Some know God to be so great because of forgiveness, because of healing, uh, restored relationships, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Quite a number of people could say, my God is great. But others would say, I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling. I'm still trapped. I'm still caught up in whatever. And um, they haven't necessarily known the greatness of God, perhaps because they've encountered a lot of evil in their life, perhaps because of, of sin. Um, for a variety of reasons, I recognize that the evil that's present around us and among us is at many times unrecognized. And people aren't aware that they're in the midst of a battle. And so they might limp along through life wondering why their life is not as victorious as someone else seems to be. We're going to look at Ephesians 6 this morning, and we've been working for quite a while to get to this point. Uh, It's taken us 16 weeks to get through the book of Ephesians to this last chapter, and now we find ourselves in verse 10 where we begin to encounter spiritual warfare. And we begin to understand what it means to come up against evil forces, things that bring temptations into our life, things that cause us to perhaps commit self-inflicted sin or sometimes to find ourselves in the midst of a trap. That's what we're going to examine this morning, but it's going to take a little bit to get there. Um, Because it's taken 16 weeks to get to this point, I feel no need to rush. And so um, we're only going to do uh, verses 10, 11, and 12 this morning and help us to understand the enemy and who we are up against. So I'm going to invite you, first of all, to pray with me, and then we'll step back into the text. Father, we've just declared how great you are, and and many of us own that. We absolutely will go to our grave saying, you are great and greatly to be praised. And I, I recognize, Father, I sit and stand among many brothers and sisters who could claim that same thing in their life. They know what it is to have a personal relationship with you, but we, we would uh, recognize, Father, also that there are those who are struggling among us to know more of your power and, and want to experience real biblical release from the things that entangle them. So God, as, as we find ourselves in the midst of this text this morning about spiritual warfare, I ask that you would give this church the capacity to see and understand and comprehend the things that you will reveal to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. You said that you are our teacher and our guide, and so we lean into that and claim that promise this morning that you will guide us and teach us. Help us to understand the truths of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recall very vividly as a child, um, albeit fairly young, uh, watching the evening news And at that period of time, there were nightly reports of the Vietnam War and the events of the day. I was very common in the midst of the nightly news and and the only major entities at that time before all the cable networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, that's all that existed. And among the three major networks, every one of them started off the evening news with, well, tonight we'll report from Vietnam, and they would begin to explain Now, for a long period of time, the reporters would reveal the casualties, the death and the injuries, the losses in the Vietnam War, 
and they would reveal the victories. And you could count on it night after night after night, watching men running through the jungles. After a period of time, the United States military kind of collaborated with the major news medias to no longer report the casualties or the losses. They felt it was inflicting too much pain upon the American public, and so they stopped reporting the death toll. I came to understand that the United States military intelligence services played a major role in the Vietnam War in that they found themselves the source of information about who the enemy was. And without the United States military intelligence playing a role in this, they wouldn't be able to identify the enemy as easily as they could. One of the difficulties of going into battle, if you can't identify the enemy, is you don't know who you're up against. What you find in Ephesians chapter 6 is that God identifies the enemy for us. Just like the military intelligence did back in the 1960s and the early 70s. We understand that we have to be able to identify the enemy. God educates us about the enemy, and so there's no reason to be caught off guard. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians 6, but put a piece of paper there or put your finger there, just hold that place, and I'm going to invite you to turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28 as well. We're going to make our way there first and then come back to Ephesians 6. If I'm going into battle, I'm going to have some very specific questions. I want to know, what does the enemy look like? What, are, what is the enemy's capabilities? What is my available weaponry? What do I have available to me? And what does victory look like at the end of the battle? Here's a truth. A true Christ follower will be involved in spiritual battles, what's known as spiritual warfare. Because a faithful Christian life, if you're doing the things the way that God called you to do, it, life is a battle. And it's warfare on a global scale, as you're going to discover this morning. And here's why. When God is on the move in your life and God activity is taking place in your life, Satan goes into attack mode. He's on the counter move because he tries to destroy everything that God is about. So if our walk is worthy of the high calling that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, if we're walking in the newness of life, if we identify the fact that we have a destiny and inheritance in heaven, if, if we're walking in wisdom, submitted to one another in love, you can expect Satan will be on the attack and absolutely certain you're going to face opposition. It will be a reality. I can give you evidences of how that's shown in the Bible. The uh, first one would be how Satan attacks personally, you individually, and how he attacks corporately, how he attacks the church. First example would be from Thessalonians. You might remember this from 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, I really, really wanted to come to you guys. But as you see in the passage on the screen, this is what he said, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. And yet, who thwarted him? Satan. He didn't mind calling him out by name. He said, I came up against Satan and he, he was on the attack. Now, we understand that God also tells us in Scripture that angels come under the attack of Satan. Now, Satan is a mighty angel himself, although he's a fallen angel, but he's also gone on the attack against God's holy angels. One example of that would be when Daniel was waiting for a word from God, and he was waiting for information from God about what God was going to be doing among the children of Israel. Well, we see in Daniel chapter 6 that an angel shows up and he says to Daniel, I would have come to you three weeks earlier, 
But one of the great demonic princes opposed me, and we did battle until Michael the archangel came and delivered me. And then he was free to do God's work. As a matter of fact, we understand that Michael the archangel actually had to go to battle with Satan. In Jude chapter 1, verse 9, you might remember this, the two of them contended over the body of Moses, meaning they had to duke it out. And whatever took place there, we don't know, but we're told they disputed together over the body of Moses. Now, that's you and I, that's the church, that's angels. What about God Himself? Oh, we understand from Scripture that Jesus' very own ministry started out here on planet Earth with a 40-day great battle with Satan. We're told that Jesus was led into the wilderness, He came under temptation, and He was in a battle with Satan that lasted a long period of time. As a matter of fact, Jesus' ministry on earth ended with a great battle with Satan. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that Jesus was on His face saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. That's the man's side, but the man's side who's yielded to God and the God's side recognized it was God's will and He said, nevertheless, not My will, but Your will be done. What you're looking at there is spiritual warfare. Jesus recognizing that Satan was on the attack. Why does this take place? Why in your life do you experience the attack of Satan even if you don't recognize it as the attack? Maybe after today you're going to recognize what some of those attacks look like. To really grasp the extent of this passage to its fullest ability that we're capable of doing, it's necessary that we go back in time. And we have to go back in time as far as possible. And that would be before the earth was formed, before man walked on planet earth. To help you understand God's creation of Satan and where that comes from and how we ended up with him here. So it is, if you have your Bible with Ezekiel 28, you'll, you'll find it there, but you'll also see it up on the screen. And what I'd like you to do is look down at verse 12, and you'll understand that what God's doing here is He begins to reveal pieces to us, pieces of information so that we can put together what happened. Now you'll notice if you have your own Bible, you're seeing that God's referring to the king of Tyre there, and there, there's a transition that takes place. In verse 1, He talks about the leader of Tyre, which is the earthly king, and in verse 12, he begins talking about the king of Tyre, which is the demonic force that's over the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. In this case, he's speaking of Satan himself. So look with me, verse, first of all, at verse 12. It says this, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So we're talking about Lucifer. Before the fall, God's referring to him here, and we're told that he had the seal of perfection. Now, Lucifer, the name that you might hear in Hollywood as referring to Satan in, in movies and various television shows, is actually a name that was given by God to Lucifer because it was a beautiful name. It means to be the shining one or the star of the morning, the one who is brilliant in his appearance. Well, that's what God begins to talk about here. He's looking back, talking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's talking about this one who was perfect in his appearance. Now, when God uses this phrase, the seal of perfection, in the Hebrew language, in the text and the way it was, it was originally written, it says you filled up the sum of all things. Understand it this way. When God created the heavens and the earth, He set boundaries by which His creation would be contained within. 
In other words, you read in Genesis 1 that God says, I determined the waters would go this far and they would go no further. I created the stars and fixed them in their orbit. They would go no further. Because God is limitless. So he has to put his creation within limits. He defines boundaries for his creation. Well, this phrase, meaning you sealed up the perfection, the seal of perfection was found in you, is is a Hebrew way of saying you filled up the sum total of the boundaries. In other words, there was no place left for him to go. He totally filled the pattern. So of all the beings created, Lucifer was by far the wisest and most beautiful creation that God had ever made. That's a great contrast to the paintings that you see today here on planet Earth of what people think of when they think of Satan. Now, he's absolutely perfect, flawless, the showroom model. And God goes one step further in verse 13, and he tells us it was so beautiful, he was actually covered with jewels. Look with me at verse 13. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. He goes on to explain all these jewels that are covering him. So he's brilliant in appearance, he's perfect in his being, and we understand in heaven there are three rankings of angels. Now, the the lowest ranking of angels are those who would be what we would call messenger angels. You see those appearing at the day of Jesus' birth. Uh, The messengers were sent to announce the arrival of Messiah. Those are the lowest rank of the angels. And they are the ones over whom Michael is the archangel. The next next ranking of angels are the seraphim. You see them in Isaiah chapter 6 when we're told that they glow red in their appearance and they have six wings. Scripture talks a little bit about the seraphim, but not as much. The next ranking is the highest ranking of angels, and that's the cherubim. And the cherubim are those who are closest to the throne of God. They, according to Scripture, they support the throne of God. They're underneath the throne. And so to be closest to the throne is to be higher in rank. Now, at some point in eternity past, God decided to take one particular cherub by the name of Lucifer and elevate him or anoint him and make him an angel over all other angels. We're told in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. So, so beautiful in his appearance, so dazzling to look at, so brilliantly conceived, God used him as a covering over his throne, not to be elevated above God, but rather to be an appearance that would draw more glory to God for himself. So we're told now in verse 15, he was blameless also. Verse 15 says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So just as his being was perfect in appearance, he's perfect also in his behavior, blameless in all his ways. So we're told, according to that, that Lucifer had the power of contrary choice. What do I mean by that? You are the daughters of Eve. You are the sons of Adam. You were born into sin. We live on a sinful, fallen world. We had no choice in the matter. We were born into this place. Lucifer was born or was created with contrary choice. He was created perfect. And though he was created perfect, he chose to sin. So he had the power of contrary choice. So we're told next in verse 16 where the origination of sin actually came from, which was not in the Garden of Eden, 
but was actually in heaven with Lucifer. Look with me at verse 16. You were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Now, Isaiah begins to talk about this same situation that happened. Isaiah was given the same revelation that Ezekiel was, not verbatim, but fairly close. And we see in Isaiah 14, he talks about why Lucifer fell. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, verse 13, but you said in your heart, meaning he determined in his mind, verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Now in the Bible, when you see the phrase most high, that literally means the one who possesses heaven and earth, the possessor of heaven and earth. So Lucifer said at some point, I will be as God. I am beautiful. Look at my appearance. And he decided and he conceived a rebellion. So in his mind, he considered himself to be equal as God and pride rose up within his heart. And you have to ask yourself at this point, what was Lucifer thinking? He's in the presence of the Almighty God. Seraphim are flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. Angels are bowing down before God. The cherubim are supporting the throne of God, and yet Lucifer says, I will be as God. So when you grasp the magnitude of the destruction that he brought into God's presence by sinning, you begin to understand why Jesus was fuming when the Pharisees and the scribes said to him, you're doing powerful miracles but what you're doing is by the power of Satan. And that's why Jesus recoiled and said, you've just committed the unpardonable sin. Because you're attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. And Jesus knew who Satan was. He understood the fall. He understood what was going on. So when you grasp the magnitude of the destruction, when Satan sinned in God's presence and destroyed all of God's creation, you understand why Jesus had the reaction. So, we know the one who is evil chose evil, and <clears throat> he's the source of evil. So here's the big picture question before we get to Ephesians 6. How did we get Lucifer here? If God finished seven days of creation, six days of creation, seventh day God rested, but at the beginning of the seventh day, at the end of the sixth day, we're told in Genesis that God looked out over his creation, and he said, it's not just good, he said, it's very good. So how do you get the fallen one, Lucifer, here on planet Earth when God's got a perfect creation? Well, Jesus makes a really fascinating statement in Luke chapter 10. He's talking to a crowd of people, and he reminds us of something. He said, I was there. I was watching when Lucifer fell. Matter of fact, he says it this way, Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Meaning Jesus was there when it happened. He's solidifying for us that Jesus had an existence before his existence. In other words, many people think that Jesus just arrived on planet earth, born in a manger, was raised a good man, and died for everybody. But they forget that he's God and he was living before he was living. He's always been. The one who was in the beginning is at the end. So Jesus is saying, I was there. I was watching Satan fall from heaven. 
what he's also doing is verifying for us there is a real Satan, Satan. Do you notice that there's a name change? See, it's very subtle. God himself no longer calls him Lucifer. He now calls him Satan because he's now become the very adversary of God and God always changes the name to fit the character. And so in Satan's case, he's filling the function and character of who he is. He's the adversary of God. So the name Satan, Satan, literally means the adversary of God. That's why Jesus changed his name. So let's move into Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 because everything that I've just described for you is Paul's understanding as he writes Ephesians 6.10. He's writing to these people at this church at Ephesus who don't know this information. They're new believers. And Paul understands he's got to communicate to them what's going on here. So he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So we know, because we started with chapter 1, that we're told we were predestined in God. We were chosen in Him. We've got a destiny in God, an inheritance in heaven. We're children of light. We've got this new identity. And we're told along the way that Jesus' life is our life. His power is our power. His truth is our truth. His way is our way. So the great reality of the book of Ephesians, when you get to verse 10, is you discover... We really are one with Jesus because His strength is our strength. His strength is delivered to us because the Lord's strength is more than sufficient. Our own strength is never enough. But when our strength is strong in the Lord, even a little bit of strength is more than enough to win any battle. See, it's not the amount of strength that I have. That's what Paul's focusing on. Be strong in the Lord and the power of whose might? His might. Not the power of Mark's might. Not the power of your might. It's the power of His might. It's the strength that He has. He's the real power source. Or what we might call the high tension lines. That was a reminder for me two weeks ago when I lost power at my house. And a friend graciously brought over a little Honda generator that you use at, um, at uh, tailgating parties. It's a real quiet little thing. And you, know, you can run a small refrigerator off from it. And I drove up in my driveway and he was just hooking it up for us. And it was so quiet. I said, wow, that's really a cool generator. It's so quiet. And he says, well, it's enough to run a refrigerator. It'll get you through until they get your power back on. And I said, well, um, it's got to be more powerful than that. Well, he left, and I didn't believe him, so I plugged an air compressor into it because I wanted to nail some boards together, and everything dimmed. You know, the power went down, and the, the engine was really straining because it didn't have the power source. It was just an instrument of power. Well, the same thing is true in Scripture. God is the source. He's the strength. He's the real high tension lines by which we operate. And His power is delivered to us through what Jesus did. So here's the ultimate big picture. The battle with Satan is already won because Jesus crushed Satan at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the power of sin and death was completely destroyed. If you need to be reminded of that, 1 John 3.8 really speaks to that. This is why Jesus came. Look with me on the screen. 1 John 3.8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And I'm sure that when John wrote that down, he smiled when he used the word destroy because the Greek word for the word destroy is, you won't see it in your notes this morning, but it's the word luau. Don't, don't think of the um, Hawaiian dinner, okay? We're not talking about a luau like that. 
The, the word is L-O-O-O with an um, uh, accent above the last O. It, it literally means to rip into pieces. If, if you're to look up the word destroy, it would say to melt apart or to disseminate. That's what Jesus did. He destroyed the works of the devil. So here's what we know about Scripture. We are fighting from a position of victory. To the extent that you are strong in the Lord, our victory over the worst that Satan can bring is absolutely guaranteed because of what Jesus did. So here's the question for you. How do you seize that strength? How do you apprehend that for your own life? Well, it comes through three things. It comes through doing, first of all, as you're going to see in verse 11. You've got to do something. And these three things, as you're going to learn next week, are prayer and the study of God's Word, and very specifically, to have faith in all that God has promised to you. So look with me at verse 11, because this is the doing part of it. It says in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Any of you here happen to own some body armor? I'm talking about the t-shirts and the shorts, and don't be afraid to raise your hand. Okay, I own some too. You can go to Dick's Sporting Goods, and you can buy some body armor, and it's real thin clothing, and it's supposed to insulate you and keep you warm when you're running or when you're out hunting, and it's called body armor, okay? This is not Dick's Sporting Goods kind of body armor here. What we're talking about is something that can't protect you from the world or from fleshly elements. We're talking about something that protects you from the power of Satan himself. So we really need to know what that is. Here's a reminder for us. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This, this word, divinely powerful, it literally means to be mighty before God. To be mighty before God. To do what? To destroy fortresses. Well, it's the same word that was just used earlier when we were told that Jesus came for the purpose of destroying the works of Satan. You have been equipped by God to destroy fortresses. You're advancing against these evil forces that come against you. So in order to take advantage of the strength of God, you've got to do something. You've got to put on what He supplies. So here's a word that is in your notes this morning. It's the word in duo. And it represents the phrase to put on. You'll see it on the screen as well. And it literally means to sink into something, but not with the idea of like sinking into a glove or sinking into a pair of long underwear, but sinking into them with the idea of never taking them off. It has the idea of permanence behind it. So what we understand is this armor that we're putting on is not something that we put on and take off. So it's not like when you go to a football game and you put on a football helmet and shoulder pads and go out and play the game and then come back in the locker room and, and take everything off. This has the idea of permanence. It's the armor of God and it's a lifelong companion and it equips us so it is put on permanently. We're going to really examine what that is next week when we get into that armor of God because it's described for us in verse 13. But here's what I want to camp on in verse 11 this morning. The phrase, stand firm. If you have your Bible open and you don't mind circling in your Bible, you might want to write next to the phrase, stand firm, a military term. And here's what it means. This military term literally means to hold a position. You'll see the phrase on the screen, histame. 
It's another Greek word for you. But it, it literally means taking hold of a critical position of land that has already been conquered. Not land that hasn't been conquered, but land that has already been conquered. So the idea is of holding a critical position while you're under attack. So how do we apply that to what we're reading this morning? It means stand firm in the area where victory has already been achieved. Jesus has already achieved the victory in defeating Satan. So that means for you, you don't start leaning into your own understanding. We don't start leaning into what our Aunt Edna might think about Satan. We lean into what God has said, and victory is what God has said has already been achieved. He's already conquered Satan. Now, before any offensive can be launched, we have to hold firmly the ground that has been conquered. We've got to maintain our own ground because of one reason, Paul goes on to say, because you're coming up against the schemes of the devil. So stand firm because you're coming up against something very specific. And he tells us in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. Now understand that just because Satan fell, just because he was thrown down, doesn't mean he's weak. Satan is a strong enemy. He is a strong opponent. He's not compared with a lion and a dragon in the Bible just for fun. So don't ever underestimate the power of Satan. As a matter of fact, if you've never read the book of Job, I encourage you to do that. And start with Job chapter 1. First of all, you'll see that Satan is still under submission to God. But Satan is very powerful. And as you read the book of Job, you'll see that he has the ability to destroy your family. He has the ability to destroy your business. He has the ability to take your health. He will even take your children. Satan has the ability to take all your money and your own personal health and take you to the breaking point where you may even want to curse God and die. You'll see that come out of the book of Job. But you understand he's a very, very powerful opponent. And so because he is God's enemy, he's our enemy because the only way that he can attack God is by attacking you. And so he attacks us and that gets to God. So we never forget he's a powerful enemy and he sees us as the opponent. So Paul uses a very specific word here. This one's not in your notes this morning. But he uses the word scheme, which is in the Greek language the word methodia or the word method that we have in the English language. Methodia was always attached to those who were animals of prey. So think in terms of a lion. This would be vivid for Paul. He lived in that part of the country where in the world where there were lions. So think in terms of a lion crouching low in the jungle grass around him. He's down on his haunches with his head tucked down deep so that the gazelle coming by cannot see him. And at the right moment, using the cover that is around him, he bolts out from the cover using the schemes and the methodia around him because he's wily and he's deceptive and he wants to conquer his prey. So Satan's schemes are built around stealth and deception. What do those look like? Well, you can read all about them all the way through Scripture because you see this constant move, counter-move, move, counter-move. For instance, in the very beginning, God established the family. And God put the family together as a unit. What did Lucifer do, the fallen one who became Satan? He moved against Cain to kill his brother Abel. 
and destroy the family. See, it's move, counter move all the way throughout Scripture. So think of this illustration with me. God said to us that he delivered Israel by the power of his right arm. He delivered them from the most powerful empire on planet Earth, the the empire of Egypt. And Pharaoh, the greatest military strength known to man. Yet God delivered this little fledgling nation. Now this little fledgling nation saw God turn water into blood. They saw the Red Sea opened. They saw earthquakes. They saw God on the mountainside through lightning and cloud. They heard the voice of God. They witnessed that God allowed them to wear clothes that never wore out, sandals that never became corrupt. And yet, that same nation was so deceived by Satan, they constantly rebelled and abandoned God and walked away from Him. That's how deceptive Satan can be. Now, when Jesus arrives on the scene, He does everything that we're told that He's supposed to do according to the, New Te- the Old Testament. Jesus arrives, and the people who are paralyzed are walking. The people who can't hear are hearing. People who can't see are seeing. People who can't speak are speaking because they've encountered the living God whom Scripture said would arrive on planet Earth. But the nation of Israel is so blind because of the deceptive work of Satan, they cannot even see their Messiah even though he's standing right in front of them. We're even told that in the last days here on planet Earth that when the Antichrist arrives, that Israel will be so deceived by Satan, they will think the Antichrist is actually the Messiah. They will be that deceived. What does that look like in 2013? Well, in 2013, Satan's schemes are are so good that we can even see it within the church. The church itself is being deceived, and I don't mean new hope. But the church itself, as you watch around the country, is beginning to deny the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sacrifice for sin. They deny the second coming and the fact that there will be a judgment day. Before our own eyes, you can see the deceptiveness of Satan and his schemes spreading out across the world. That's how good he is. If you pick up your notes this morning, you'll see that I listed some of the schemes of the devil in your own world today. I'm not going to get into it right now, but you can read about it later. These are some of the things that he does in our own lives. But move forward with me to verse 12. This is the last one we're going to take on this morning. Verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul's reminding us that our struggle is not just against Satan. He didn't name Satan there. He listed some other powers. What are those powers? Well, first of all, understand they are an ancient class of creation. And they constitute a really intimidating and a highly experienced enemy. And we're talking here about the demons. So he lists them, and if you don't mind circling in your Bible, three entities. He lists principalities, he lists powers, and he lists rulers. And what we're talking about here are the army of demonic creatures, those who are the fallen angels, who when Satan fell took a third of heaven with him, and those act on his behalf today. So you can read about that in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. Here's the point for Paul bringing this up. Our battle is not against human beings. You get that? Our battle is not against human beings, even though you might think that it is. You might think it's that person who ticks you off. 
You, you might think it's that coworker you can't get along with, but we're told according to Scripture, our battle is not against human beings. It's against spiritual powers. So we waste our time fighting people when we ought to be fighting the one who seeks to control people. Our greatest enemy is not the world that we see around us. It's the world that we cannot see, the invisible realm. So Paul uses a very specific word here when he uses the word struggle. It's the word pele, and here's why it's so specific. It's in your notes, and it's referring to a wrestling match. Now, mind you, he's just used the imagery of armor. And so we've got this image in our mind of a sword and a shield and a helmet. But he drops that imagery, and he transfers over to this word pele. Because in the Roman world, the imagery of pele was very powerful. In the Greek world, pele, wrestling, was used as entertainment. But in the Roman world, it was a matter of life and death. Because when you stepped into the arena in a wrestling match before Caesar and all the spectators, you understand that the one who had victory, who was able to clasp his opponent and deceive him and scheme against him and literally throw him to the ground and defeat him, had the power of life and death over that one and could turn to Caesar for a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So what Paul is saying is our struggle is a life and death battle, a Pele, which really is involved in trickery and deception, and Satan seeks to destroy. Why does he do that? Because Satan and his demons know they are sentenced to the bottomless pit of hell. That is their ultimate destiny. And so they seek desperately to change the outcome of what they know to be true. And every time they can thwart God's plan like Paul wrote about and somehow throw God's timing off in war against him, they ceaselessly enter into war in order to break the power of God because they seek to destroy the things of God. And that's why you see evidence of him in your own life. Because if you knew that your ultimate destiny was hell, you would do everything you possibly could to avoid that. Now, make no mistake, they don't want to go there. They don't live there. Satan doesn't live there. There's no throne set up in hell. It's not a place that they want to be. It's a place of torment. They don't want to be there. And so they constantly fight against going there. That's why the war takes place, because they know their ultimate destiny. They read the end of the book just like I did, and God's Word never changes. So they war and they war. So here's where we're going to wrap up today. I want you to understand that when Paul's referring to these spiritual forces that we come against. He's referring to rankings. I didn't put it in your notes this morning, but if you circle the word rulers and the word powers and the word world forces, you understand it's reflecting a ranking of demonic order. And it's reflecting a power is a system of operation. He has some who are subordinates and some who are superior, just like God does in heaven. But he uses a very specific word here when he uses the word world forces. In the Greek language, it's the word kosmokrator. And it's in the notes this morning. You'll see it up on the screen. But the, world, the, the phrase world forces, kosmokrator, is referring to a world ruler. One who aspires to world control. So your mind, when you read that, very quickly drifts back to Ezekiel 28. And you know that Lucifer was elevated. And he looked around and he said, I'm not good with just this elevation that God gave me. 
I aspire to rule over all of God's kingdom. I will be as God, possessor of heaven and earth. So the same thing is consistent now all the way in the New Testament. Thousands of years later, Paul uses the same imagery when he says he's the cosmocrator. The one who aspires to world control. See, he's consistent all down through the ages. We are pitted against an incredibly evil enemy. But here's the truth this morning. There's no believer, no believer, who cannot stand and deal with Satan on the terms of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That is your power source. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is our power because we're joint heirs with Him. That's what God's Word promises. You were delivered from the domain of Satan. He took you from that place and put you into a heavenly kingdom. Colossians 1 says this, Colossians 1.11, For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now that's true only when you trust in the Lord's power. That's where there's safety. So no true Christian is under Satan's control. And where sin is confessed and where sin is put away, Satan and his demons are expelled from your life. Now, make no mistake, the battle that you're in is not really your battle. It's God's battle. It ultimately belongs to the Lord. Let me remind you of what Second Chronicles says. Second Chronicles 20.15, it says, do not, be, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That's stated in Second Chronicles because of King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat was leading an army, and his army wasn't that big, and he was afraid to go to war. And so God sent him a prophet, and he said, Jehoshaphat, remember who you're really fighting for and whose battle this really is. It's not about you. It's about me. Well, this statement that this prophet made really echoes in my ears because it reminds me of a young man by the name of David who had said it hundreds of years before because when David, before he was a king, looked down in a valley and saw a mountain of a man, the Goliath of his life literally, he said to the nation of Israel, the fighting forces that had gathered who were whimpering and cowering away, he looked at Goliath and said, the battle right there is not mine. The battle is the Lord's. The truth, church, is the battle is the Lord's. The battle that you enter into. We know from God's Word that Satan and his demons are continually at work around us. And so we get into really dangerous ground when we attempt to deal with things on our own power, in our own ability, leaning into our own understanding. God says stay in the ground where victory has already been accomplished. That's in the power of Jesus Christ. Don't step into things that God never intended for you to step into. So here's your responsibility this week as we look forward to what the armor is next week. We are to put on God's armor and to report to Him because He's the commander-in-chief. He knows the battle plan. He knows the strategy, and victory has already been accomplished. So let me remind you with three things before you go out this morning. First of all, never underestimate the strength or the resolve of the enemy. And the struggle that you are in is a war to the death. Now also remember that Satan is not the equal and opposite power of God. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not infinite, and he cannot read your mind. That is not the power of Satan. 
He wants you to think that it is, but it's not true. But here's the truth that we rest with this morning. God once and for all defeated Satan at the cross and crushed him. And that's the power you stand in this morning. Let me pray with you that you remember that as you move forward this week. God, we've heard your word declared, and we've lifted up your name in song, and we believe this to be true, that you are great and you are mighty, and victory has already been accomplished. Thank you for the forgiveness that we know and the victory that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you redeemed us, not because we're worthy, but because of your grace. So God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning who have known deliverance from sin and can know what victory looks like as we continue to war against Satan, but that you've already won the battle. Father, I ask that you would remind us as we go out this week that we are people who stand on the ground of victory. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.